welcome to Diverse Tech Founders, a podcast about the one thing older than capital, people like you and me. Now here's your host, Abraham J. Williamson. Welcome back to Diverse Tech Founders Media, sitting in Atlanta now, right outside of Cafe Comma, with Madeline Beck of The Better Spot, who you might have heard mentioned on the podcast previously from some of our other guests who have been on. So it's uh, a treat to have Madeline here in person and getting a chance to get to know her better. Like I said, we're outside, so bear with us. That being said, uh, Madeline, we've uh, known each other for a little bit, but this is the first time we've met in person. And it's wild a chance for me to ask you a question I wanted to ask you, too, about your origin story personally and about you when you were a kid, because you have a very distinct, unique boisterous and gregarious personality was it always like that talk to us about childhood madeline where you grew up how you were raised and just walk us back to those moments so we get a better idea of the person you were before all of this oh my goodness well first of all thank you i'm so excited it's it's super wild to to build a relationship with someone virtually and then meet them in real person so um this is a treat but yeah so me i mean me from as a child i don't feel like i've changed very much which may not be a positive thing what do you mean what do you what do you mean what do you think is making you unique as a person no, I was raised in South Side of Chicago, and I was raised by my mother. My father passed when I was very young, and um, my mom was a figure in the community. So she was politician, hardcore. Like think about you know the Mrs. Cosby, but a politician and instead of an attorney like that. What was her office? She oh my goodness she did she did primarily uh, city development. Um, so she, you know, identified areas that needed improvement, was hands, ten toes, ten toes down in the community and worked with community leaders and supported the mayors. And I mean, she was, you know, she was, she did all the things. My mom was a woman that wore many hats um, and she did it with, <laughs> you I, know. I'm just curious about South Side of Chicago growing up. Because people yeah. say that and it has like this connotation or meaning. What did it mean to you? to grow up in Southside Chicago with the mother who was in the community and, you know, your dad had just passed away. What, is it, what did it mean to you to be in Southside Chicago like that? And is it the same today? Oh, my goodness. So when you, when you go to second cities, right, especially Chicago, we have chips on our shoulders intentionally because we're up against the L.A.s and the New Yorks and the, you know what I mean, of the world. But it's like Chicago is, and I know I'm saying this in Atlanta, so I don't want to say too loud, Chicago is is the heart, right, of black culture, primarily because of the great migration and the industrialism that black folks and other immigrant populations brought to the city, built it up to be what it was, and then intentionally defined their communities, although systemically placed, right? So it's still one of the most segregated cities in the country. Some of the most, you know, diverse languages spoken in the zip codes of Cook County within itself. But... Um, it really forces you to figure out who you are. I was someone who wanted to learn the rules, but not necessarily maintain them. You know, with my mom being in policy, with my mom being in, in politics, she was always very much like, learn what you can and cannot do. And then she taught me, obviously, in the household, you're going to follow what you can and cannot do. But when I got outside of the house and I like went into young adulthood, I, w I became more curious. I was like, okay, I understand it inside and out. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know who's in charge. I know the bureaucracy. I know what it looks like. Why? And that's not always accepted. 
you know, people aren't always going to encourage you to question. I feel like that's definitely a generational thing now where everyone's like, ooh, curiosity, innovation. I'm an 80s baby. So it was like, what do you mean? What? You better, if you know what I mean? So it's, it's um, I was really curious about the why. And then once I learned the why, I wanted to collect them, right? I refer to myself as a, as a receptacle of stories. I disseminate them. I receive them. So um, talk about school. How were you as a student? I was a good student. I didn't have a choice, right? Like I didn't have a choice to not be a good student. Studied a lot. Honors did all the things. I wasn't a sports person, although I come from a very athletic family. I was very um, arts and science minded. So I did debate. I did theater competitively. I did speech competitively, nationally competed, won awards, did the things and had to maintain the GPA. Um, so you were a superstar socially too, if you were involved or how were I you as a friend? I wasn't, I wasn't, a, I wasn't, I was a superstar. I just, because I'm curious about people, I want to meet a lot of people. Okay. You know what I mean? So I didn't just hang out with like one group of folks. Okay. Like, you know, like when you say, like, oh, the drama kids, like, yeah, I hung out with the drama kids, but like I had friends that were jocks. I had friends that, you know, smokers. I had friends that were, you know, so. This is good. So painted more of a picture because I've always wondered, like, how did you, you know, become, so now let's talk about technology you are a self-taught programmer right no code yes yes still nonetheless more than many people because a lot yeah. of founders today you know are non-technical full stop uh, but gotcha. you do have some exposure to that what was your earliest taste of technology you mentioned being an 80s baby what is sort of your oh, wow. when did you grip technology and innovation you know to start when were you first starting to see that there was this world mm. happening you know with devices with perhaps the internet, all of this, like what was your earliest moment where you started to come online? Probably two that coincided was AIM. What was AIM? I was, oh, sorry. Uh, AIM is, was the AOL chat feature. Um, just like iMessage, just like, oh, um, um, so, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was the, it was the first Google chat. It was the first iMessage. It was the first, you know what I mean? Like the old school, the little yellow icon that was like running over the blue circle. Like that was the spot. That was the thing. The reason why it's such a pinpoint in my memory is because I wasn't allowed to have an AIM account. So it's an interesting thing about, you know, safety, internet safety, information, data safety, those conversations were not being had, at least not on the level of me and my mom, right? Like we weren't over here reading CNET um, at our house, but um, there was just something intuitive with my mother where she's like, no, you are not going to create your own profile and have your own handle. I'm going to have access to your password, I'm gonna have that. And I didn't care, I just wanted one because all my friends had one. So I was like, okay, fine, whatever, right? But having those conversations with her and then again, asking the whys, well, why? Why, what are you gonna say? How am I gonna access your information? And then that whole internet of things and that, then I was like, oh wait, oh my goodness. It's not just me having an account, me being able to chat with my friends, after, you know, whatever, after a science report or something, it was, this is giving me access that is mine. This is giving me an ownership and a way to be seen, right? A performative aspect, a filter, to share myself in a way with my colleagues, my friends, whoever, that my mother won't have access to unless I grant it to her. So she's now telling me what I can do in my own space. So it was, it started to open up things for me. Um, and well, then that- important to you? Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Because I feel like when you're a kid, you're always being, at least for me, I'm not going to speak for everybody else. Let me get, let me get to my I, I statement, step in as a therapist, VI statement. Um, my experiences were very much calculated when I was a child because I knew I was always being watched. 
So I was um, like in a school setting, right? I was in, I mean, there was like a handful of black kids that went to my all white private school that my mom sent me to. Because again, protection, because she wanted me to have a very specific type of academic experience because she wanted me to get into certain rooms that she knew the schools in our local area wouldn't grant me access to, right? So I knew I had to act a certain way when I was there. And not necessarily a code switch per se, that's language that I use later on in life, but more so a, am I trying to get in trouble with Ernestine type? <laughs> <laughs> type thing, right? So let me let me make sure that my skirt is two inches beneath my fingers, and let me do the things and say the things and get the grades. And um, but then having those profiles, having that aim, and then my second one is MySpace, right? Being able to, woo, you know, being able to build that community. Um, <laughs> I know everyone's like, "What's MySpace? How old is this woman?" But yeah. <laughs> MySpace, uh, it had its moment. It mm -hmm. definitely did. The music and the profiles, the personality, uh, more than the chat. So the fear of being watched, or the idea of being watched, mm -hmm. uh, it reminded me of something that I came across when I was in grad school. And I'm just telling you this brief story, yeah. and then we can get into no, no, the no. better spot. And I definitely want to, to go deep there. So uh, somebody introduced to me the idea of the Panopticon. Foucault, which I don't know okay. if you're familiar mm -hmm. with this. Okay, I'll tell you this briefly. So uh, Foucault has a, a story of the a prison that was supposed to be designed to have maximum security mm -hmm. with minimum personnel. Okay. And so they built a radial prison with essentially a watchtower in the center of it mm -hmm. with people at the top mm -hmm. and the cells opened up into that courtyard mm -hmm. inside mm -hmm. the circle. And Initially, when the prisoners were in there, the guards would walk them to their cell. And as they were walking them to their cell, they would say, remember, you're being watched. Okay. Remember, you're being watched. Okay. And then they would close the door. Remember, you're being watched. And they would leave. And they would continually do this. And there was a person at the center at the top watching them. Okay. But eventually, they didn't even have to tell them anymore because they had internalized sure. it to themselves where they were telling themselves, remember, been, I'm yeah. being watched. Mm -hmm. Remember, I'm being watched. And Foucault draws from that story to contemporary today as it relates to women. Mm. And women are kind of told, oh, you know, fix your hair, fix your face, mm -hmm, makeup mm -hmm, on, look mm -hmm. in the mirror, remember you're being watched. Even, you know, having these ceremonies where you have the sleepovers where you're sort of reinforcing that idea, remember right. I'm being watched, remember I'm being watched. And I actually think that extends even further into different social systems. You know, you mentioned being, you know, black in this private white school where you're told, hey, remember you're being watched mm -hmm. in an even different way with more layers to it. Right. And I think as founders in this community, we kind of internalized that Ooh, too, yeah. having to be perfect oh, in a lot goodness. of ways. So yeah. now talk about your company, The Better Spot. And already I'm seeing some um, origins that maybe predated the founding with your mother and the work that she's been doing. But mm -hmm. talk to us about what is the better spot and where did that idea really come from? Talk to us about the day that you birthed it as an idea and eventually the company it became. Oh, wow. Um, so many thoughts. Oh, my goodness. How much time do you have? So, I got the Foucault things got me all sorts of fucked up. Excuse sorry. <laughs> um, the um, So, the better spot... <laughs> We are a sustainable wellness company uh, leveraging technology to create a secure online platform for certified holistic practitioners and an offline 
on-demand space for them to be able to practice, um, which makes integrative care accessible to everybody. So, so that's that's who we are, and that's what we're doing. And the birth story is—I mean, it's—it is my intrinsic why. So, the birth story is a one of necessity. I went through a wild trauma, a life-changing trauma, in 2017, and I needed to. No. No. And so I, I needed to get into um, immediate psychiatric care. Wow. And so I did that. And then while I was doing that, my practitioner was like, I really think, you know, I learned about pain body when I was seeing her. And um, pain body is essentially like the, the, the thesis that everything that's happening to you mentally and emotionally exists within your body. Every cell of your body has a memory that maybe your cognition has intentionally protected you from, but it lives within you. And so I started going through that and started unpacking some other things. Like I went into therapy for one thing and it unfolded all these other things. I was like, damn, I should have been here a long time ago. So yeah, so started, started exploring that. And again, because I was just so um, fascinated by the experience of being in therapy, I was like, I want to understand this academically. So this is also me in 2017, already having had a BFA and a master's being like, I'm going to go back to school. Mm. So I went back to school and started my journey as a, a marriage and family therapist focusing on the modality of emotionally focused therapy because um, you know the the phrase is if you can't feel it you can't fix it right is therapy not already emotionally focused so there's different modalities of therapy right there's cognitive behavioral therapy there's solution focused therapy there, there's all these different almost like when you go and see a general practitioner some of them are focused there some of them are, are neuro you know naturopathic right they only use uh, natural forms of you know non-medicinal or non-traditional uh, medicine um, there's occupational therapy there, you know what I mean so there's there's a bunch of different modalities within the idea of, of talk therapy of psychotherapy so when I was going through what I really vibed with what I felt like I would be passionate enough by to finish going and getting a third degree I did that I did EFT and then in doing that work in the classrooms in my supervisory groups right with other students that were going through the work I just kept hearing the same problems which is, uh, which is like, okay, cool, this is great. I now have to do all these hours because, you know, I went through um, school and, you know, all my supervision in the state of California, which is the hardest state in the country to become a licensed practitioner. When did you move from Chicago to California? Oh, man. So I went to college in New York. I stayed there for a little over six years, left there, went back, got my grad degree back in Chicago. Uh, followed a boy out to California, stayed in California for a while, came back to Chicago, went back to California, came back to Chicago, went back to California <laughs> and, was, and stayed, in, stayed in California up until 20, I mean, uh, up until August of last year. Okay, so back to, back to yeah. the school. So you were hearing the same problem. Yeah, so I was, I was, hearing, I was hearing three primary problems, right? The first, the first problem that I was hearing was the difficulty to be an individual practitioner, right? Whether, whether you wanted to be in private practice or whether you wanted to kind of carve out your way in like a, a public space, it was just difficult to be able to manage operational costs right after you've gotten licensure. Because when you think about it, right, when you are not a licensed clinician, you need to have supervision. That supervision is something that you have to pay for. Wow. You generally pay for it out of what you make. So if you're working for, like I started off working for Department of Mental Health, LA County, and like 
that was like nothing and the hours were a lot because it's a system and they figure out your caseload and it's wild and you have to, you know what I mean? Like, so now I was like, eh, this isn't the fit for me. So I went into private practice and in private practice, you know, an example is my um, hourly for couples was 225, but I was only making, I don't even know what the percentage is, but significant, I'm not gonna say it, but it was significantly less than that per hour. So you're also living. Right, you have to live off of that, and then once you're done with that, you have to pay for the licensure. You have to pay for the testing. If you don't pass the test the first time, you got to pay for it every time. You got to pay for your test prep, then you got to pay for your rent and everything else. And then, and then you know, once you're ready to open a private practice, you gotta. Are you a marketer? You got to pay for this. You got to pay for that. You got to pay for your insurance. You got. It's just. It's. It is. It's not just opening a business. It's opening a business that is regulated. There are lots of costs that come with that. And then you know, pre Panini, aka the pandemic. Um, you, you were doing everything in person. Virtual therapy really wasn't the hot spot hashtag that it is now. There was also tons of regulations against it. So how do you have a space where I just got out of school, I have all this debt, now I have all these other fees, I don't have any clients, right? Because there were a lot of non-competes when you leave a private practice. However, some of your clients could come with you, but some of them wouldn't. So you go from having a full caseload to maybe having a few, you know, people that ride with you. Okay, now I have to build up. Now I'm also going to have leasing costs. And so it's just, there was a lot of, when you're in school for something like that, which is very similar to, to, to art, right? Which is what my BFA was in. They teach you how to do the thing. They teach you how to be an artist. They teach you how to be a practitioner. They don't teach you how to be a business person. So when you leave and you want to gift the world with what you have, you end up struggling. And a lot of us, a lot of us bow out. There's a lot of parallels with other professions too. I think about the law as well. They don't teach you how to mm -hmm. bring in your own clients or manage them or you yep. know, uh, you know, build relationships in that same way. So how does the Better Spot solve that problem? So yeah, so the traditional cost aspect, right? When I initially started the Better Spot, it was just a space. It was an on-demand space for practitioners and it was an on-demand care space for clients. So the other part of that trauma that I was talking about in 2017, when my psychiatrist was like, you have to get other work done. You need integrative care. You know, you need to go see a chiropractor because something's happening to your back. You need to see an acupuncturist because of your stomach and the night terrors. If you don't want to take this medication, right, that has all these side effects, you need to also see potentially, you know, a, a naturopathic doctor or an apothecist to be able to get some, you know, um, some alternative things, different food diet, maybe see a nutritionist. Like all these different things went into a comprehensive whole human healing experience. And I ended up driving everywhere to get those things and spending a grip of money and waiting. You know, I would wait on some people's wait lists, you know, 45 days because I found someone that I vibed with that was a reflection of me that I, that I knew would understand my journey and my experience and would give me the care that I needed. So I was willing to wait for the 45 days, but it's like when you are in a crisis mode and you need healing, or even when you're not in a crisis mode, you still need healing because you value what the person offers. You're gonna wait for the 45 days, but what's, what are you losing? right in that time. So, um, so what the Better Spot offers is the on-demand space element, right? You can come, uh, a practitioner, certified practitioner can come into the space and rent a curated space for their modality, right? Uh -huh. We offer 12 modalities of health and wellness, everything from birth work to, to nutritional coaching, You right? can come in there and have a baby. 
Ah, birth work. So, okay. so pre, <laughs> pre or postpartum, pre or okay, postpartum, okay. right? And uh, it's, it's a huge thing, right? That the better spot specifically, I always say this, we are holistic care. We all are alternative care, right? So the things that you're gonna get in the hospital, you're not gonna get in the better spot because you can go to a hospital and get those things. I think it is really important just from an anthropological standpoint that we return to the things before pharma. Right. Okay, this is good. And I want to go deep here because health is something that everyone has to deal with at some point. And like you said, oftentimes it's in the face of an emergency, but we're seeing more people appreciating, you know, preventative aspects yep. of their health 100%. or just health maintenance in general. What evidence of traction did you see? Because, you know, you're out there, you know, promoting the better spot and getting more people to buy into your thesis. Are people saying that this is a problem like the classrooms that you were teaching in? Are people saying, yo, sign me up? Where do I go? What was the earliest evidence of traction that you saw that is making you keep going with this? So the earliest evidence of traction was the other half of our model, right? We're a dual model. So we have the in-person, which is what, what I started back in the early days of solving that traditional operational hurdle. And then when the pandemic came, ain't nobody going to be in a space together, right? right. I mean, we, we legally couldn't. Like, you couldn't do it. L.A. was one of the first ones to shut down hardcore. So talking to the practitioners that were the pioneers and early adopters of what I was doing from a physical space who, like, signed leases. Like, they were ready. They were like, you get the building, please. I mean, people were literally like, well, I can put on a security deposit. And ethically, I was like... I don't feel good about that because I don't have a space. I'm not going to take your money. Um, and I think we had that conversation before where it's like, you know, do you take money when you don't have anything? And it's some folks are like, people do it every day. And I'm like, I'm not those people, so I'm not going to do that. So, but anyway, so that, I mean, that was like, you know, you know, nebulous, like the earliest, earliest, earliest of traffic when we had to include, expand, right? Not turn away from, but turn towards a bigger vision. I was like, well, we need an online space because I don't want all these people that have started community and been excited about what we're doing just to exit or to wait inevitably because although our cheeto leader at the time was saying it was only gonna be two weeks it was not two weeks you know we were in that for two years and so we pivoted towards technology and created a space for the practitioners at first just to talk and i was like well it can't be open because that already exists there's already hashtag therapy twitter hashtag social social worker twitter like whatever whatever um, and people come in there and, you know, same thing with Facebook groups. Like you can have like a single layer, but nothing is verified. We don't know if you are who you say you are because again, access. So I was like, let's do a very simple first layer of, I'm going to create a space for y'all where, you know, every person you're in community with has an active license. Let's start there. And I was doing it manually. So I checking licenses. Yep. So I went onto YouTube University. I created a closed platform, learn how to do the sign up, learn how to have people upload their photos. And then I got a little bit more savvy and started learning a bit more things. But yes, the, the very bare bones was having people create profiles, post their picture on the back end, put all of their licensure information, like you know, state, license number, expiration date but only I could see that information. No one else would have access to that, but I would be able to then go to their state board, verify that they were who they said they were, and then give them access to the platform. And that was huge. The conversations that were being had. So when you talk about early traction, folks were like, I'm vibing with this. So this was a closed community where people were saying things they never heard or seen before. That they wouldn't say on public spaces because they didn't have the noise. 
Right. Is there a category of things that you could talk about, or is it still under lock and I mean, I mean, I'm not going to obviously obviously say anybody's names, but but you know, there was there was folks that were talking about like two of the two of the biggest conversations when when I first started the virtual uh, community was talking about how messed up the systems were. Um, a lot of people were just like, "Why are we over here scrambling to take tests?" Like, I mean, the upset was real. The tests are completely biased. Also, the information that we studied for the years that we were in school was also biased because it's very specific to who wrote it, when it was written. The reform for it is forever. They intentionally make you jump through a million heat. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's literally like the foundational elements of every other system that was created in this country, and it was done very much intentionally. So folks would come through, and they would air it out in the space. And it was safe because when you're amongst everybody else who has the same thing to lose as you do, you know what I mean? It's not. It changes. It changes what the vibe is. So, I just got a question. No, were no, you no. moderating the discussion, or were you letting it play out? And did was it just was it a place where people were airing it out and then solving it? Were there differences? How did you? Because community has been the theme for the last two years. Yep. Build community, build community, and yet you have one that's active. How did you manage it? How did you promote it? How did you cultivate it? I just, I mean, I treated it like it was a house party, right? I love, I love hosting. I love having parties with close groups of people, right? When I invite people to a house party, it's, it's intentional. You don't invite all the same type of person because then all you're going to do is have the same type of conversations and who wants to do that? That's boring as shit, right? You're also not going to expand or grow as a person because everyone's just going to be like, it's a parrot conversation, right? Everyone's saying the same thing. No one's going to oppose. Wah, 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 wah. Oh, I feel so much better about myself. No, because you've got no opposition. So that was another, you know, intentionality behind the group of like, okay, well, I want the virtual group to reflect the physical space. So I want all these different modalities, which also brought, again, back to your question, another point of contention. Coaches do have certifications. They do not have licenses because coaching is still yet not regulated at the intensity and stringency that clinicians are. So there were always conversations between coaches and therapists, social workers, clinical counselors, right? Of, you know, well, who are you to say that? Or, okay, well, what are you, a coach? Or, you know, and then obviously you can always read into the nuance of text, right? Text is always gonna come out a bit cattier or pettier than, <laughs> than talking to somebody voice to voice. So, you know, there was a lot of, not necessarily infighting, but a lot of just conversations around, yeah, you know, around that, which again is great because then it's not, you know, you're not going to have a group of folks teaming up on whoever. It's, so what role did you play? I would, I would drop seeds. I would see things. Don't make, that, don't make that face of me. I mean, it's intentional, right? So I would see things. I would see conversations or things that were trending in other spaces, in public spaces. And I would see how many people would say things like, I'm just here for the comments, but wouldn't comment. Or people who'd be like, mm, or they'd retweet with an emoji, but wouldn't say anything. I'm like, what? You can't. What are you doing? Like, if you're going to come there and retweet, are you retweeting in support of? Are you retweeting to flag somebody, to out somebody? Like, what? what's the intention? So I would see these things and I'd be like, you know, screenshot. What do y'all think about this? This is wild. Or have any of you experienced this or whatever? And then I would just fall back because people would be like, oh, feast. Well, you know, and then, yeah. Thank you for joining this week's episode of Diverse Tech Founders Podcast. I'm Abraham J. Williamson, and we had yet another great guest to pop in. And if you enjoyed 
today's podcast recording, please give us a rating. You can do it right now on iTunes or Spotify or whatever, and we'll see you next week.